Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Let's take a look at our top stories. Quad leaders vow to stand together for a free and open Indo-Pacific. President Biden saying it's about democracy versus autocracy. President Biden says a recession in the U.S. is preventable, but what are leading economists and other experts saying? More illegal immigrants are drowning and dying from the heat. The U.S. is seeing an uptick in those venturing through harsh conditions to reach the United States. And a recent report reveals 14 states had significant miscounts in the 2020 census. The inconsistencies seem to have caused unfairness in several races for congressional seats. We take a closer look for you. With all eyes on China, the four leaders of the Quad Group vowed today to stand together for a free and open Indo-Pacific region. And today's Jessica Beatty has more. President Biden and his counterparts from Australia, India and Japan met Tuesday in Tokyo to discuss strengthening ties in the Indo-Pacific region to uphold democracy. Because that's what this is about, democracies versus autocracies, and we have to make sure we deliver. Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida linked Russia's invasion of Ukraine to China's increasing aggression towards Taiwan. Beijing considers democratic Taiwan as part of its territory, and it's recently sent record numbers of warplanes near the island. Although Japan's leader didn't call out China by name, he said the Quad can't let an invasion happen in the Indo-Pacific. It is crucial that we gather together for the four countries to align and show the international community that we are strongly committed for our common vision of a free and open Indo-Pacific. The White House says the Quad will focus on six main areas of cooperation. They include COVID-19 response and global health security, climate, critical and emerging technologies, cyber, space and infrastructure. Quad leaders also announced a Quad Fellowship Program and opened applications. The program will sponsor 100 students from Quad countries to study in the United States each year for graduate degrees in STEM fields, science, technology, engineering and mathematics. In addition to the summit with all four countries, Biden also met one-on-one -on -one with Australia's new Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese. He was just sworn in Monday. My government is committed to working with your countries and we are committed to the Quad. Biden also met one-on-one -on -one with Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi. They agreed to strengthen ties for trade, technology and defence. Although India has developed close ties with the US in recent years, it also has a long-standing relationship with Russia. Despite that, India and Washington have shared views on China, which the Quad views as a bigger long-term challenge than Russia. Jessica Beatty, NTD News. Also at the Quad Fellowship, President Biden reaffirmed that the U.S. policy of strategic ambiguity on Taiwan has not changed. This just one day after he suggested the end of that position, saying he was willing to use force to defend Taiwan. Here's more. Following a Monday speech about U.S. military support for Taiwan, President Joe Biden was asked if U.S. strategic ambiguity on Taiwan is dead. The president said no. Our policy has not changed at all. I stated that when I made my statement yesterday. He also did not answer a question about whether he would put troops on the ground to defend Taiwan. Biden's two comments appear to contradict each other. Some critics have even said he misspoke on the issue or simply made a gaffe. But one expert argued it wasn't a slip of the tongue. President Biden, when he was a senator, voted for the Taiwan Relations Act. 
He's visited Taiwan before. He's not new to foreign policy. So in my view, given where it was said in Japan, next to the Japanese prime minister, the context coming after Russia's invasion of Ukraine, um, I believe that this was not a gaffe. Under the Taiwan Relations Act, Washington is required to provide self-ruled Taiwan with the means to defend itself, but it has long followed the policy of strategic ambiguity toward the island. That is, leaving China to guess exactly what the United States would do if the Communist Party chose to invade. So I think President Biden's statement was not intended to signal a shift in U.S. policy. It was intended to clarify uh, how committed or how much support the United States uh, attaches to the Indo-Pacific region, as well as uh, U.S. attention on what's happening in terms of cross-strait dynamics. Tensions in the Taiwan Strait have gained renewed attention in light of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. According to Yin Sun from the D.C.-based Stimson Center, what Biden meant by military support can be interpreted in a number of ways. Well, of course, people would say that, oh, most directly, military intervening means American boots on the ground. Well, not necessarily. What we have done in Ukraine, that is intervention, but it does not involve direct troop deployment from the United States. That intervention could come in the form of training for Taiwan's military or additional weapons sales to the island. Cloudy with a chance of rain. That's the common metaphor being used by economists and analysts forecasting a possible recession in the U.S. Entity's Jeremy Sandberg tells us why. The outlook for the U.S. economy is unusually cloudy, with war in Ukraine, commodity prices rising, and the Federal Reserve raising interest rates in an effort to slow down inflation. Panelists during a World Economic Forum meeting on Monday in Davos, Switzerland, say uncertainty is disturbing financial markets and complicating investment decisions for businesses. I think the magnitude of uncertainty is greater than we've seen in a long time. And so for any of us to accurately predict, um, I think it would be very difficult to do. Adina Friedman, president of the NASDAQ Stock Exchange, says the U.S. Federal Reserve faces a difficult job raising rates enough to slow inflation without putting the economy into recession. While Friedman says there's a lot of money created by the government yet to be spent in the system, the biggest concern is consumer confidence. If consumer confidence really continues to go south, the markets continue to show a lot of wobbliness and, and a lack of a foundation to give savers an understanding of where their portfolio sits, and that confidence continues to drop. That, to me, can become self-fulfilling into recession. Harvard University economist and White House economic advisor during the Obama administration, Jason Furman, says the overall pace of the economic recovery is positive. The United States, I think it is much less scary for me, for the economy, um, than it was um, two months ago. He says the job market is strong and households still have plenty of savings, although wage hikes are falling behind rising prices. Inflation is at a 40-year high, is on the negative side. Um, real wage growth, inflation-adjusted wages are falling at the fastest pace they've fallen um, in 40 years. So this is a real, real problem for people. International Monetary Fund Chief Kristalina Georgieva says that while she does not expect a recession, it isn't out of the question either. Georgieva says the IMF has downgraded projections for growth this year for 143 countries, accounting for 86% of global GDP. And since then, in a short period of time, a little bit like the weather here in Davos, the horizon has darkened. 
J.P. Morgan Chase CEO Jamie Dimon spoke to investors on Monday, describing a strong economy with big storm clouds. Dimon told investors the weather metaphor affirms a great deal of uncertainty about the economy, but that the clouds could dissipate. Earlier this month, Dimon predicted three possible scenarios, the first being the Fed managing a soft landing, cautiously hiking interest rates while avoiding a recession. However, his other two possible outcomes were less optimistic, saying there was a one-third chance of a mild recession and a chance of it being much harder than that. Americans are growing increasingly pessimistic about the state of the economy and Joe Biden's presidency, according to a recent CBS poll. 63% of respondents described the state of the country as uneasy and worrying. With inflation the highest it's been in four decades and rising gas prices, living standards are tightening for most Americans. Average national gas prices in the U.S. reached a record high of $4.59 a gallon last week, according to AAA. President Biden's disapproval rating came in 56% in the CBS poll, with 65% saying they feel Biden is slow to react on issues. Two-thirds of those who have money in the stock market are pessimistic about their investments. Inflation has slowed slightly since the Federal Reserve increased interest rates in May by 50 basis points, the largest increase since the year 2000. Further rate hikes are expected this year. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. In April, over 90,000 illegal immigrants were expelled from the U.S. under Title 42, but large numbers are still trying to cross the border despite harsh conditions. Among these groups, drowning and heat-related deaths are increasing. Here's more on the story. Mexican authorities on Monday found the bodies of three Honduran migrants. Their bodies washed ashore in the Mexican Gulf state of Veracruz. A small boat capsized, and that is why people washed up on the shore. We moved to that place and we confirmed that there were four people alive, one of them a 12-year-old minor. The survivors were taken to the beach where they received medical attention, but four other migrants are still missing. It is something sad, but just imagine, people won't stop trying to reach the U.S. because it's supposed to provide a better life. In the Rio Grande Valley of Eagle Pass, Texas, heavy rainfall can raise the river to neck level of most adults. But the dangerous currents don't act as a deterrent. Videos on social media give instructions on how and when to safely cross the river. This live account, to name one, has drawn thousands of followers on TikTok. But such risk-taking could come at the cost of life. In the southern Del Rio border patrol sector, drownings are on the rise. And as temperatures get warmer, border agents are also dealing with heat-related deaths. Even so, groups of dozens or even hundreds of people frequent the area. Customs and Border Protection defines them as large groups. A statement from the agency shows that beginning in October 2021, the Del Rio sector spotted a total of 112 large groups. That's almost half of the large groups encountered by Border Patrol nationwide. Voters are heading to the polls for primary elections in four states, and that includes Georgia. A dozen voters lined up ahead of polls opening this morning at this library in the Buckhead area of Atlanta. In the governor's race, former Vice President Mike Pence has been rallying support for Brian Kemp, the incumbent running for re-election. Former President Trump has endorsed his opponent in the Republican primary, former Senator David Perdue. On the Democratic side, Stacey Abrams is running unopposed, setting up a potential rematch with Kemp after 2018's loss to him. Primaries are also being held in Alabama, Arkansas, and Texas. Republican Senate candidate David McCormick has filed a lawsuit to ensure all mail-in ballots submitted without a handwritten date are not disqualified. 
That's in the tightly contested Pennsylvania GOP primary Senate race. The lawsuit seeks to compel all of the state's 67 counties to count ballots that were received on time but were missing a handwritten date on their envelope. Under state law, these ballots would have to be rejected. McCormick's lawyers say the majority of Pennsylvania's counties indicated they won't count the undated ballots. However, they argue the ballots should be counted and the technical error disregarded. McCormick's team is referencing a court ruling last week that went in favor of counting ballots without written dates. McCormick is facing primary opponent Dr. Mehmet Oz in the tightly contested primary race. Oz is currently leading McCormick by under 1,000 votes out of more than 1.3 million ballots cast last Tuesday. The Pennsylvania Republican Party says it objects to the undated mail-in ballots being counted. Oz's campaign manager says his team also opposes McCormick's request on the basis of state election law. A recent report by the U.S. Census Bureau sheds light on significant miscounts in the 2020 census. These errors led to what looks like an unfair distribution of congressional seats among red and blue states. Based on data from a U.S. Census Bureau report, six states were grossly undercounted in the 2020 census. Of them, all but Illinois were red states. On top of that, populations were overcounted in eight other states. Of them, six were blue, with two exceptions, Utah and Ohio. The report estimates an overcount value of 6.8% in Hawaii, the highest of all the errors, and undercounts reaching close to negative 5% in Arkansas and Tennessee. The figure means one out of every 20 residents could have been missed. Demographer Allison Plyer offers one possible reason for the miscounts. She says in states like Tennessee, Mississippi, and Arkansas, fewer households have access to computers and Internet. Yet, the 2020 census was the first in history to encourage online participation. As for Hawaii's overcount, people coming on vacation were more likely to get included in the state's count as they wait out the pandemic. These errors had a major cost for certain states, the loss of new congressional seats. Florida's undercount percentage translated into over 750,000 missed citizens, but the state only needed some 170,000 more people to gain another seat. That's according to an analysis by Election Data Services. Likewise, in Texas, undercounting led to 560,000 missed residents, and the state needed no more than 200,000 people to gain a seat. While in Rhode Island, a 5% overcount resulted in more than 50,000 additional residents being reported. If the state had some 20,000 fewer people, one seat would have been lost. Rhode Island Republicans say they're concerned that the miscalculation could undermine public trust in government. The Washington, D.C. Attorney General has filed a lawsuit against Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg. That's for allegedly failing to secure millions of users' data during the Cambridge Analytica privacy scandal. The 37-page filing accuses Facebook, now known as Meta Platforms, of violating Washington, D.C.'s Consumer Protection Procedures Act. That includes misleading users about how their data will be used and sharing information with British political consulting firm Cambridge Analytica. The lawsuit claims Zuckerberg encouraged third-party companies access to user data during the 2016 election in an attempt to shift the outcome. According to the suit, the exposed data covers more than 70 million Facebook users in the United States, including over 340,000 Washington, D.C. residents. The attorney general's lawsuit is the latest attempt to hold the platform's CEO personally responsible for the data breach. 
The district also seeks damages and civil penalties if the social media giant is convicted. A new U.S. Supreme Court decision makes it more difficult for prisoners to argue they had ineffective counsel. Justices ruled that state prisoners may not present new evidence in federal court to support a claim that their legal counsel in state court after being convicted was ineffective. The ruling was a major defeat for two death row inmates who say they had compelling claims that their state lawyers failed to pursue. It will also make it harder for inmates to prevail on claims that they got ineffective counsel at the state court level in post-conviction proceedings. The three liberal justices dissented in the 6-3 opinion. In a stinging dissent, Justice Sonia Sotomayor called the decision perverse and said it gutted precedent. She wrote the majority opinion reduces to rubble many inmates' Sixth Amendment rights to the effective assistance of counsel. The United Nations is expected to vote on the Biden administration's proposed amendments to the international health regulations. Those would give the WHO chief unilateral powers to declare public health emergencies. But the House Freedom Caucus is calling for Biden to drop the amendments. Next, we hear from an international litigation nonprofit on their perspective. Joining us now is Jonathan Alexander, who is the Senior Counsel for Governmental Affairs at Liberty Council. Thanks for making the time, Jonathan. Thanks so much for having me. What is your reaction to the Biden administration proposing amendments that would give the Director General of the WHO unilateral powers to declare public health emergencies? Well, this is shameful as much as it is dangerous and unconstitutional. Uh, The shameful part is that it's coming from our president, the fact that Joe Biden has proposed these 13 amendments. Uh, The danger in it is that it's ceding control over to this government entity that is not the United States. And the unconstitutional part is that they don't uh, abide by any of our Bill of Rights, any of the freedoms that we've committed ourselves to. Rather, they are an unelected body that is determined for whatever cause is necessary uh, to basically put the world on a chokehold, have it follow its dictates, depending on what threat or pandemic it deems at the moment to be necessary in order to lock down the entire world. The president released a joint statement with president of the European Commission, Ursula van der Leyen. They said the amendments to the international health regulations will strengthen global pandemic preparedness and response. What's your reaction to this? Well, what you and I hear as, what they say has strengthened, you and I hear as increased lockdowns. I mean, everyone remembers what happened in 2020 where the entire world, and even well into 2022 in areas like China, where much of the world was forced by government edict to remain indoors, to not see family, to not be able to work, destroyed economies all over the world uh, because of this pandemic narrative. And anyone that would speak to other medical remedies were even considered by our Department of Homeland Security to be of a domestic terrorist threat. Well, this is it on steroids. This is bypassing any governmental authority within the United States, bypassing any accountability that these people have to elected individuals. This is bypassing any authority that is ceded from the Constitution Uh, but rather allowing this body that is made up of uh, international players. Uh, There's even a diversity and equity inclusion part of this, so uh, new standards in allowing individuals to be part of this board. Uh, This is allowing unelected individuals across the pond, literally, to dictate what goes on in our country. And they're going to supersede everything that we have in terms of our freedoms and everything that we have in terms of our Constitution. And there's no accountability. There is no ability for the people of the United States to stand up against this. In your view, has the the administration done enough to allow the media to have enough time to respond to this proposal? 
Well, no, I mean, if it wasn't for a select few individuals that sounded the alarm, we would not have been paying attention to what's going on in Geneva this week. Uh, it's sort of done under the radar back in January and now in this meeting that's going on uh, this week, May 22nd to the 28th. They've done this undercover because they knew at any point, if you were to tell Americans that you're ceding authority to an international body that is unaccountable to the people, if the media were to echo that message, certainly Americans would have no regard for this. And we ought not to have any regard for this international body that is not accountable to us. Um, and it's it's unfortunate that the media, in many ways, if they've been darkened intentionally, that's one thing. But if they've been complicit in ignoring what Joe Biden has been steadily marching towards, uh, I think a lot of blame lays at them. Now that we do know, uh, the interesting thing is that they even have six months from now. So if they were to put this forward, it would take a six-month clock in order for this to run out, which means it would occur after the uh, midterm elections, which uh, even that then is, is, is curious at best, but I think it's very, uh, in a way, convenient for them how convenient it is for them to be able to push this down past the midterm elections when many Americans would be paying attention to something like this, the United States ceding international authority to this body. Jonathan Alexander at Liberty Council, pleasure having you on today. Thanks so much for having me. Just ahead, a Ukrainian intelligence official claims the Russian president survived an assassination attempt soon after the invasion of Ukraine. Find out more after this short break. Ukraine's intelligence chief claimed in a new interview that Russian President Vladimir Putin survived a recent assassination attempt. Intelligence director Kirillo Budinov made the allegation to Ukrainian newspaper Ukraine Pravda. He said the incident took place while Putin was in the Caucasus region just days after the invasion on February 24th. The Kremlin has not issued a public comment on the allegation. NTD could not immediately verify the official's claims. Earlier this month, Budinov told Sky News that he is optimistic about rebuffing Russia by mid-August. He says it will lead to a change in Russia's leadership. While speaking to director Oliver Stone in 2017, Putin said that he's survived five assassination attempts since he became the leader of Russia. At the time, the Russian president asserted that he was not worried about his safety. Starbucks announced Monday it is leaving Russia after nearly 15 years. The exit is part of a wave of American companies pulling out in response to the war in Ukraine. Seattle-based Starbucks has 130 stores in Russia with nearly 2,000 employees in the country. In March, Starbucks shuttered its stores and suspended all business activity in Russia, including the shipment of its products to the country. Monday's decision makes that suspension permanent. Christian Ledoux, the director of investment research at CapTrust in San Antonio, says with the move unlikely to significantly impact Starbucks's bottom line, the company had no choice. A company in America cannot afford to have a good chunk of its uh, customer base either rebelling or protesting against the, the company simply because it has less than 1% of its revenues in a, in a country that is going against American values. Starbucks's move comes a week after an even more iconic American company, McDonald's, pulled the plug on its Russian restaurants. On Monday, its trademarked golden arches were removed from a store near Moscow. That exit was a far more significant business decision. McDonald's had a much longer history in Russia. 
Uh, Starbucks had only been there for 15 years, and McDonald's was there uh, basically at the uh, falling of the Berlin Wall. So this is, is a much bigger investment that McDonald's made. McDonald's owned the stores in, in Russia as well. So it was a, it was a much more difficult uh, extraction. And it was a, a much larger percentage of sales. I think it was somewhere in the 9% range of McDonald's sales came from Russia. So this is a bigger deal for McDonald's than it was for Starbucks. Starbucks did not provide details on the financial impact of the exit. McDonald's said it would take a primarily non-cash charge of up to $1.4 billion. Russians are rethinking their summer travel plans abroad amid rising prices and fears of growing anti-Russian sentiment. Here are the details. Tatiana and her fiancé, Nikolai, wanted to travel to Turkey after their wedding in June. But like many in Russia, they changed their plans. We went to a tour agent to book a tour to Turkey. But the tour agent talked us out of it because now there are a lot of difficulties. Many people return and many of those who traveled there for vacation came back unhappy. She told us directly that many Ukrainian women work at the hotel and there could be trouble. Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which has killed thousands and displaced 14 million people, has not only prompted international sanctions, but has Russians fearing they could face growing anti-Russian sentiment abroad. Add to that logistical issues and soaring prices, and it's all made travel abroad for Russians seem next to impossible. Tatiana and Nikolai will now plan to take their holiday in Crimea. In fact, many Russians this summer are expected to opt for domestic travel. In general, it's a pity that plans to travel abroad to Europe and visit a dream city have been ruined. However, it's always possible to find a great alternative in our country because we have many beautiful places. In the aftermath of the war in Ukraine, international sanctions have, among other things, cut into the country's travel industry. Airspace was closed to Russian planes. Travel to Europe is no longer an option for many Russians because of a lack of direct flights. And even when flights are available, the cost of air travel has skyrocketed. And MasterCard and Visa credit cards issued in Russia stopped working abroad. Marina and her husband canceled the trip to London in May, citing increased prices, difficulties with booking, and a feeling that she might be confronted with Russophobia. In March, we saw what was happening in the first place with prices. In the second place, it was impossible already to book through Airbnb because the service was denied. So it became much harder to find and book apartments. And to be honest, I already felt anxious about what might happen to planes and flights in general. She and her husband spent their May holidays in the southwest city of Kazan and traveled there by car. Coming up, experts say the lockdowns in China are affecting the U.S. economy. American companies and consumers are affected. And the arrest of Cardinal Zen in Hong Kong is sparking concerns over the city's autonomy and its religious freedom. We hear from an expert on how communism has historically badgered religious leaders and why Americans should be concerned about Cardinal Zen's arrest. We'll have more for you right here on NTD News. The Justice Department says a pair of scientists pleaded guilty to illegally importing potentially toxic lab chemicals and forwarding confidential mRNA vaccine research to China. A husband and wife who worked as research scientists for a major American pharmaceutical company pleaded guilty on May 19th. 
They sought to gather confidential mRNA research and use it to advance the husband's own competing laboratory research in China. Wu Chenyan worked for many pharmaceutical companies throughout his career, including a major corporation unnamed in court documents. His wife, Chen Lianchun, also worked at the same company. Wu moved to China in 2010 and opened a laboratory there in 2012. The lab focused on mRNA vaccine research. Chen remained in the United States and continued working for the American company. Chen repeatedly accessed the company's computers and copied confidential materials. She then emailed those materials to her husband in China. Wu and Chen are both scheduled to be sentenced in August of this year. Officials in Shanghai are pledging that they'll soon begin to ease restrictions that shut down factories. That's after weeks of lockdowns in China. Experts say the stagnation there is impacting the U.S. economy and American companies blame the shutdowns for losses. What does this mean for consumers? Weeks of lockdowns in China have left their mark, and American consumers are also feeling the impact. It is going to be a painful time on prices from goods that come into America from China. And that's a lot of goods. Economic data for April shows China's industrial output, what factories produced, fell by 2.9% compared to last April. Last month, the world's largest container port in Shanghai was running at about half of its capacity. Companies can't find truck drivers to move cargo, choking off supply chains and increasing costs for companies. Experts say that's leaving American consumers waiting longer to get their goods and paying more for them. The orders will take a lot longer. If you thought it was bad in 2021, it's going to get worse in 2022. American companies like Apple, Amazon, Starbucks, Coca-Cola and General Electric are getting hit hard by China's lockdowns. Apple says it could lose up to $8 billion in sales in part by the lockdown. And recently, two of the world's biggest automakers, Volkswagen and Toyota, suspended production for weeks. And Tesla sold about 1,500 cars in mainland China in April, made it its Shanghai plant, a decline from March when it sold 65,000. Business needs predictability. Is it going to be six months, nine months? We don't even know when Shanghai is going to stop the lockdown. Meanwhile, U.S. hospitals are facing a shortage of contrast dye used in some X-ray, MRI and CT scans because the Chinese factory that produces it was shut down for weeks. You won't find Airbnb options in China anymore. Business in the country has been on the decline because of all the strict COVID-19 lockdowns. So starting this summer, the home sharing company will be taking down its listings there. However, Airbnb says it will still keep its office in Beijing up and running. Many multinational companies in China are struggling as officials there continue to pursue a zero COVID policy. The policy has badly dented the economy and disrupted almost every major line of business. U.N. Human Rights Chief Michelle Bachelet kicked off a high-stakes visit to China this week. It's a trip that has been long in the making. One, we will be discussing some very important issues, some sensitive issues. I hope this will help us build confidence and enable us to work together in advancing and promotion and cooperation of human rights in China, but also at the global level. Bachelet met with Chinese officials, including Foreign Minister Wang Yi, on Monday. Her six-day trip will also include a visit to Xinjiang, 
According to the U.N. High Commissioner's Office, Uyghur Muslims in the region are illegally detained, mistreated, and subjected to forced labor. Beijing has repeatedly denied that accusation. When asked if Bachelet could visit re-education camps in Xinjiang, the Chinese foreign ministry said she was welcome, but rejected what it called political manipulation. Human rights groups are concerned that if Fashelet doesn't exert enough pressure on China, her post-trip report may not give a full picture of the situation and could be used by Beijing to justify its actions in Xinjiang. Cardinal Zen has appeared in court in Hong Kong. He was arrested under China's national security law for allegedly colluding with foreign forces and being involved with an organization that helped pro-democracy protesters in 2019. The Cardinal plans to offer a Mass tonight, which is the World Day of Prayer for the Church in China. Next, we get some insight from an expert on what his arrest means for religious freedom in the city and why Americans should be concerned. Please welcome Ambassador Andrew Bremberg, who is the President and CEO of the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation. Thank you for joining us, Ambassador Bremberg. Thank you for having me today. Absolutely. Now, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi said that the arrest of Cardinal Zen signals Beijing's fear that it is losing in its battle to crack down on Hong Kong's freedoms. What is your reaction to this? Uh, I, I absolutely agree with the speaker's remarks. Um, she, she delivered a very important rebuke of the Chinese government. Um, our organization, the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation, we awarded um, our highest award, the Truman Reagan Medal of Freedom, to Cardinal Zen. Uh, in 2019, and Speaker Pelosi was with us uh, for this important event when he visited Washington just uh, three years ago. And according to The Economist, Cardinal Zen was arrested for allegedly raising funds for the pro-democracy protests in 2019. Do you suspect that, that his arrest is limited to just this, or does it signal a crackdown on religious freedom in Hong Kong? Uh, unfortunately, uh, it is clearly the latter. Uh, the Chinese uh, Communist Party uh, can create whatever pretext it wants. Uh, as an excuse for any individual's arrest. We've th seen this across the board. And unfortunately, in the case of Cardinal Zen, uh, that is clearly what, what, what is happening. Um, in, in several months leading up to his arrest, we saw in-state media outlets repeated um, increased mentions of um, the, the, the party's concern about the influence that religion was having. Uh, and many people had already talked about that this, this was laying the groundwork for greater crackdowns and arrests. And unfortunately, we saw that culminate with the arrest of uh, Cardinal Zen. And can you speak more broadly? Is this common for communist regimes to crack down on religious freedoms? Absolutely. Um, virtually everywhere around the world over the last 100 years where we've seen um, communist totalitarian regimes, uh, oppression of religion and the arrest of religious leaders uh, is nearly universal. Um, under the Soviet Union, there are countless examples of prominent, not just priests and religious leaders, but including cardinals who've been previously arrested by the regimes. Uh, cardinal Menzetti from Hungary was arrested and sentenced to life imprisonment um, and you know, fled to, you know, to sanctuary in a U.S. embassy and, and was you know, exiled at different points in time. Um, all throughout Central and Eastern Europe, you saw um, like similarly Catholic uh, bishops and cardinals uh, arrested, harassed, uh, by communist regimes. We, we've seen the same in Cuba uh, still today. And unfortunately now, as we see in China, you know, Cardinal Zen, who of course has been a saintly and heroic figure in China, um, had, had left or fled Shanghai to Hong Kong you know, decades ago. Um, but now, unfortunately, as part of the CCP's broader 
know, crack down on Hong Kong, the, the destruction of democracy and self-governance in Hong Kong, it obviously now leads to greater religious oppression as part of that. And why should Americans be concerned about Cardinal Zen's arrest? Well, I think Americans care deeply about li liberty in general, specifically about religious liberty. I mean, you know, the, the founding of America stems from immigrants coming to the United States from Europe seeking religious freedom and religious liberty. Religious liberty has always been a bedrock of uh, the American way of life. And as we see, not you know, in the past and today, crackdowns on religious liberty are frequently the advent, the, the, the first sign of increasing persecution and totalitarianism and violations of human rights across the board by any regime. Because um, frequently they know, particularly communist regimes, they know any other source of you know, truth or you know, ideology that does not come from the regime is a threat to the regime. And time again, throughout the last you know, 100 years of communist regimes, we've seen religion, you know, churches and other religious figures have always been viewed as a threat to communism. And that's why we've seen outright you know, oppression. Uh, here, the, the arrest of Cardinal Zen, as you mentioned, the genocide in Xinjiang with Uyghur Muslim uh, minorities in the West. And of course, for, the, for more than 60 years, the oppression in Tibet. Ambassador Andrew Bremberg, President and CEO of the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation, thank you so much for your analysis. Thank you so much. Still to come, scientists find a new species of a prehistoric flying reptile in Argentina. The animal lived alongside dinosaurs and could have measured up to 30 feet long. And a farmer in England is taking away fences and replacing them with GPS collars on cows that create a virtual fence. All that and more after this short break. Hollywood made up the Sharknado, but NASA says a Sharkano is very real. NASA released this photo of the Kavachi volcano erupting underwater in the Solomon Islands. The space agency calls it a Sharkano because two species of sharks live in the volcano. A 2015 expedition found the sharks, including hammerheads, inside of the submerged crater. NASA says the volcano is one of the most active submarine volcanoes in the Pacific, and the presence of sharks there has raised questions about the extreme environments large marine animals can call home. Argentine researchers have discovered a new species of pterosaur. It's a flying reptile that coexisted with dinosaurs during the Cretaceous period. It's a finding that provides information about these predatory vertebrates that could measure up to 30 feet in length. Paleontologists discovered the remains of the prehistoric animal in sediment from the Cretaceous period, which ended about 66 million years ago. It was found in the Andes Mountains, about 600 miles from Buenos Aires. Researchers say the flying reptile is notable for the size of its bones. It's the largest pterosaur found in South America and one of the largest in the world. A co-author of the research said the fossil bones were found in outcrops located in southern Mendoza province in rocks estimated to be 86 million years old. The study on the new pterosaur was published in the prestigious scientific journal Cretaceous Research. A farm in southern England is putting GPS collars on its cows. The collars play audio alarms and send an electric pulse when animals go past a virtual fence. 
the technology could lead to the elimination of traditional physical fences and help the farm rotate crops and livestock. This will improve biodiversity and the health of the soil. Here's NTD's Joy Felix with this report. A farm in Shipley, West Sussex, in the south of England, is trialling a collar that contains a GPS chip on its cows. The technology could allow farmers to get rid of physical fences. Basically, it works like an electric fence the cow carries around its neck. It keeps the animals within a virtual paddock. The cow that's inside that pasture wearing a collar will, when it meets that boundary, hear an audio and that audio uh, will warn the animal that you are outside your grazing area, you need to return. And the animal learns that if I don't return, I get an electric pulse. The GPS chip can locate the animals in relation to the virtual paddock and send that information to the farmer over a mobile network. Russ Carrington, manager of the NEP Regenerative Farms, has been trying the collar for two weeks to help him rotate the grazing areas of the cows. By doing so, soil gets a chance to recover. This trial is part of a regenerative farming project at the NEP estate, an area which used to be home to intensive farming. Regenerative farming seeks to improve the health of the soil, water and crops, as well as to enhance biodiversity. But with the collars here, we're, we're doing much more gentle moving and maybe sort of once a week, depending on the grazing conditions, how much rainfall we've had, how much feed there is, the size of the area, as they were getting them used to uh, moving around on, on the basis of wearing these collars. The cows are still getting used to the technology and are in a double fenced area for now. On the No Fence app, Carrington can monitor the live position of cows see how often they triggered the alarm and the electric pulses. The ecologist of the estate is already starting to see benefits from the technology, one of them being the soft border the virtual paddocks create, giving space back to hedgerows. With the no-fence collars, we're starting to see this hedge starting to spill out into the, into the field here, billowing out and having a chance to breathe more easily. And over time, this is going to be much better for biodiversity, much better for, for nature. That's moving back. Black thorns are growing next to the hedge, which help make it denser to welcome more biodiversity in the future. More flowers will mean more butterflies, hoverflies, moths and beetles, which in turn will attract more birds, especially nightingales and even bats at night. A positive domino effect. Joy Felix, NTD News. Just ahead, a workshop in Venice takes the ancient art of weaving to a new level. Their products have reached celebrities in the White House, the Kremlin, and Hollywood. Stay tuned for more right here on NTD News. New York City marked another chapter in the slow death of the landline telephone Monday. The removal by crane of the final payphone, which was located on 7th Avenue near Times Square, marked the end of an era for the street's iconic feature. The booths were once a fixture on seemingly every street corner in the days before cell phones. According to local media, Manhattan will keep four of the old-fashioned phone booths on the Upper West Side on West End Avenue at 66th, 90th, 100th, and 101st Streets. The city says the phone booth is destined for an exhibit at the Museum of the City of New York, looking back on life before the digital age. 
The U.S. Naval Academy's freshman class successfully climbed the greased 21-foot Herndon Monument on Monday. They replaced the freshman plebe Dixie Cup hat with an upperclassman hat, marking their official passage from first-year plebes to fourth-class midshipmen. The traditional Herndon climb dates back to 1950. The monument is greased with a heavy coat of vegetable shortening, and the plebes must exercise perseverance, teamwork, and ingenuity to replace the hat. As they struggle under the weight, a steady stream of water is sprayed over the plebes to cool them off. This year's class, which graduates in 2025, worked for 3 hours, 36 minutes, and 58 seconds to replace the cap. Since 1962, when the time has been recorded, the longest recorded time was 4 hours and 5 minutes, according to the Naval Academy Public Information Office, which said the shortest time was under 12 minutes, but the monument wasn't greased that year. A workshop in Venice is preserving the ancient art of weaving using wooden looms. The precious velvets produced are coveted by the White House, the Kremlin, and stars and popes alike. In a small workshop in Venice, seven artisans are crafting delicate velvet on weaving machines. They are the last guardians of this ancient art. Velvet weaving was one of the most important economic activities in Venice, and people came to Venice from all over the world to buy velvets. Their end product is shipped to the rich and powerful. The CEO of Vevelacqua Textiles says the tiger skin velvet in his possession was used to upholster chairs in singer Mariah Carey's mansion. This one of the Kremlin is one of the most recent. It was made about 10 years ago, for example. This other one was made for the White House during the presidency of Eisenhower. I remember that during the presidency of Giovanni Gronchi, something was made for the Curinal Palace in Rome. Then we were pontifical suppliers for many years, so the most important churches in the Vatican were furnished with our fabrics. Textiles in Venice were once as famous as its architecture and sculpture. From the 13th to the 18th century, the velvet produced was used to make the most luxurious clothes for European nobility. But due to rapid industrialization of the roughly 6,000 looms used by weavers in the 16th century, only 18 remain today. The company revived the old looms in 1875 and has been in business for six generations. One thing that sets us apart is that we are able to reproduce in a truly incredible way a two to three hundred year old fabric. After all, the looms we use are two to three hundred years old. Manual weaving requires a complex series of operations that add to production time. In some cases, an entire day is necessary to weave less than eight inches of fabric. Once, the fabric for a chair that was decorated for the Kremlin took a whole year to complete. The techniques are the same as in the past, so we can't even consider using something technological. And this is also perhaps the main feature of this work, the fact that we don't need to have something new, but it works perfectly as it used to. It is precisely the patience and skill behind each piece of fabric that makes them delicate and beautiful, which is why requests come from all over the world. If you're heading out of town for the Memorial Day weekend, you're going to have company, lots of it. Memorial Day is the unofficial start of summer, and AAA estimates over 39 million people will be traveling this weekend. That's up 8% over 2021. It's especially good news for the airline industry, which estimates that air travel will be up by 25% over last year, which is pretty close to what it was in 2019. 
The first trailer for the latest Mission Impossible film is now out, and as expected, it's action-packed. Your days of fighting for the so-called greater good are over. This is our chance to control the truth, the concepts of right and wrong for everyone for centuries to come. You're fighting to save... The seventh movie in the franchise is titled Dead Reckoning Part 1. Tom Cruise, known for doing many of his own stunts in the series, returns as special agent Ethan Hunt with the Impossible Missions Force. The movie hits theaters July 14th. Dead Reckoning Part 2 is set for a 2024 release. It's expected to be Cruise's last appearance as Hunt. Thank you so much for joining us. We're going to put our email address on screen. We'd love to hear from you. For podcasters, that's news.today at ntd.com. Until next time, Kevin Hogan. NTD News, New York City.